had a dream about this place. ghost stories for the end of the world this is the concluding part of my chat with mr brace belden um private investigator dark cowboy and co-host of the parapolitical podcasting phenomenon truanon and in this episode we expand out beyond zodiac to look at the the bay area and california in general during the 60s and the 70s and then we get into the weeds on the emergence of the serial killer and explore possible reasons why so many of them came from such a relatively small geographical area on the west coast uh, this isn't it's not by the way the most pleasant of topics to ask someone to read about or talk about so you know a massive massive thanks to brace for taking time out from working on his own show to help me understand this time and place in American history. Uh, he did me a huge favor here and it shan't be forgotten. So remember, uh, you can find me on Twitter now at ghost stories end and some marvelous fans of the show, uh, KP and Adam have helped set up a discord for, for listeners of the show to connect and bolster their psychic defenses against being captured by the man. But if you want access to it, remember to sign up over on the Patreon. Oh, and I am also informed that there is now a Reddit for the show, uh, which has been set up by a very kind listener called Robert. So with all that said, please enjoy. This is the Zodiac Speaking Part 2. So yeah, the Zodiac killings uh, take place against broader backdrop of, as we know, like, you know, massive social change, um, massive paranoia as well. Um, and I guess I was, I was wondering if we should open with like a look at San Francisco in the 60s and, and the Bay Area in general uh, to kind of sort of contextualize Zodiac. Yeah, I think... I don't know. I, I I feel like people have always thought of the Bay Area. Uh, I mean, San Francisco in particular, but the Bay Area as well as like a refuge for like freaks and lunatics and like, you know, like mm -hmm. oddballs and, and misfits, which to be clear, it is in a way, but I don't think in sort of necessarily the positive way that, that people think it was. Um, you know, San Francisco was not always, I mean, 
actually not for most of its existence, this sort of like liberal haven that it is, uh, that it is described as, I mean, obviously it has, um, been much more tolerant of, uh, let's say other political ideas and whatever, uh, you know, in, throughout the, throughout its history, but it has had, uh, its current reputation basically stems from the 1960s. Uh, I mean, there has been, uh, San Francisco was the site of, um, I mean, it's a fairly, it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a fairly newer city uh, as an actual city. I mean, it, it's, it's on the West coast, which means it has a, a couple hundred years less history than some, some cities on the East coast or maybe at least a hundred. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it was the site of some pretty big labor battles in the early 20th century. I mean, the whole city basically burned down in 1906 due to a giant earthquake. And then, um, you know, there was a, uh, a long history of, um, you know, working working people and working class organizations um, doing both good things, uh, including, you know, uh, one of the biggest general strikes. Uh, I mean, I think the biggest general strike on the West Coast and in San Francisco in particular. But also, uh, it was the home of a very sort of peculiar breed of, well, maybe not so peculiar, but a particular breed of socialist in the early 20th century, uh, late, late, late uh 19th century, um, where, uh, where they were, they were maybe like very, very pro labor and sort of spoke in this like economic left wing populist rhetoric, uh, but hated Chinese people. And in fact, uh, there was a lot of the lynchings of Chinese people, uh, early in the city's history. Uh, and, um, it, and that was it, carried just, out by, um, socialists as well. Well, not, I mean, it was carried out by basically everybody, but there was a, there was a big split. I can't remember the exact name of the organization, but it was like something working man's organization. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there was that, there was a big split in it eventually because, uh, some people just wanted to be like, um, anti-Chinese. Like that was like one of their main, uh, main political points and others disagreed with them. But yeah, it was a pretty mainline, uh, political opinion here for a long time. And like, you know, you could kind of get away with whatever you wanted and used kind of Chinese people as, as, as both like a um, rhetorical uh, punching bag, but also like a group of people that you could basically annihilate at, at will. Um, you know, something that continued on to the 20th century, not with Chinese people, but with, uh, you know, World War II, particularly Japanese people. I mean, there's San Francisco has always had a large Japanese population and uh, many of them were dispossessed from their homes, put into camps, et cetera. Yeah. And so this yeah. is, this is, you know, San Francisco, it's not like, um, it hasn't exactly always been like this freak city since the since it was it was uh, it was created and it was a gold rush town when it was made and so there was a lot of real weird people but there was also a lot of really bad predators around essentially since its inception. Um, you know, it, it's also home to a lot of white enclaves, like ethnic enclaves, like every city was, um, yeah. and and pretty sizable contingents of that uh, up until the 1960s. Um, when the hippies, uh, hippies came in and that was sort of the beginning of the end to like the, uh, the specifically like white ethnic neighborhoods, which tended to be a lot more conservative than, um, well, than the people that replaced them essentially. Yeah. And I guess like these, these, like these hippies and the dropout kids and whatnot, they kind of, they kind of overwhelm, um, the city, especially like around. Hate Ashbury. Hate Ashbury. Hate yeah. Ashbury, right. Or the hate. I mean, hate Ashbury is a specific intersection, mm. and if you say hate Ashbury, you're basically talking about like upper hate commercial corridor. Right, but the okay. hate is actually like a fairly sizable neighborhood. I've lived in both lower and 
upper hate in my life. It's it's just like a I don't know. It's like an inexpensive name. It kind of sucks. It's like upper hate is like, like hate Ashbury is like a very big tourist trap. Um, but it's also like where a lot of my friends worked when I was younger. My first job actually was a block from hate Ashbury. Um, which, uh, at a crepe place where I worked for two days when I was 15, (laughs) um, before being asked not to work there anymore. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I don't know. It's yeah. But at at the, you know, now it's obviously fairly, I mean, there's no hippies anymore. The only sort of residue of that are like, cash in kind of like tourist trap stores and like tie-dye double-decker bus tours um and then a bunch of like sort of homeless squatter not homeless as you might recognize them anywhere else in the city but like traveler kids like crust punks basically so yeah so you have this sort of experiment in living i suppose you could call it in the hay yeah um i remember reading about the diggers they were quite a uh anarchist sort of group that were trying to uh experiment with free living so you know free food uh mm-hmm. canteens and uh, things like that and they describe it as the 60s as we think of it only actually happened for about nine months between well at least in san francisco it only happened for about nine or ten months between 67 and the beginning of 68 and then i think they hold like a, a funeral for the council yeah, or something yeah um so it doesn't seem like it's it's interesting what a massive sort of psychic impact that tiny window of time has had uh, around the hate and whatnot. Well, the summer of love, it's, it's actually insane to think of this because the summer of love is like basically like a, a phrase, I guess you could call it, or a name that's like pretty much famous among the, in the English speaking world, at least. Uh, and it describes this very particular time period that, uh, you know, it's supposed to evoke sort of a larger like 60s thing, but it, it really wasn't. Well, first of all, it really wasn't how people described kind of ever, but um, it, 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 it's much more. It's less expansive than I think people may, maybe from a cursor examination w- w- would think. Um, I mean, it is sort of astounding how many people came to San Francisco during this yeah. point. I mean, it was like they they flocked here. Everyone from like, you know, people trying to make it in rock bands to, uh, you know, like people trying to reinvent themselves, people uh-huh. who just wanted to get high and get laid to like runaways, hordes and hordes of runaways. Yeah, uh, yeah. Started appearing in the city and in, in the hate, you know, a lot of the residents there were not too thrilled at their neighborhood being, uh, invaded by a bunch of you know grubby uh moccasin or at best wearing um you know people cavorting around but uh you know the city in general like you know it was not i mean again like you know it's always been sort of an artistic city but it's not as dirty i think as as the hippies sort of wanted it to be um yeah and so uh, there were some pretty big tensions in the air at this time i mean there were the 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 whole country was tense but um San Francisco did not deal well with its uh, with its invasion of hippies, and and you know on the other side, of course, you had like Berkeley, and uh, you know, and uh, sort of a lot of. Um, it's funny because Berkeley always struck me as actually more overtly political than mm-hmm. a lot of the San Francisco stuff did. Um, yeah, you know, hippies were uh, you know you had the diggers and the sort of like uh, anarchism, I guess, espoused by a lot of these groups. But in Berkeley, people seem to talk more in traditional terms, even if a lot of them were also sort of hippie or hippie adjacent, talking more like traditional terms of what you'd think of as like 60s radicalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember reading, I think I mentioned this 
in two episodes on the trot now, this book, because I've just been reading it because I'm sort of doing the 60s. Uh, it's a book called Revolution in the Head about the Beatles in the 60s. And there's a a bit in it where he's describing what the counterculture was like in London. And I wonder how similar this is to uh, The Hate because uh, the author describes how in 67 at the Roundhouse in London, you had um, art installations and happenings and, you know, the Beatles would come down and play like secret tracks that they were never going to release and that sort of thing. And within a year, there were gangsters at the door demanding protection money. And most of the early sort of pioneers of that scene had either burned out on acid or they decided to sort of escape to the country, you know, to get their heads together, as oh, yeah. they used to say. Um, that, I happened, just wonder, that happened in the US as well. Yeah. And especially in the hate, like you were saying about predators, it does seem that this sort of, uh, the way that the all these different people converged on on san francisco it definitely seems to have proved to be like a hunting ground for a lot of predators as well mm-hmm. and not just you know serial killers <laughs> but uh, also the government i guess government agencies yeah, yeah um, well i mean it, you know talking specifically about lsd i mean that which is kind of hard to get away from in this conversation um i think after being in Greenwich Village, the CIA moved Operation Midnight Climax, which is, I think, one of the more famous kind of MK Ultra, MK Ultra adjacent mm-hmm. uh, operations, which is where they had uh, prostitutes give Johns um, a variety of drugs, but I think also LSD, right? And uh, yeah, 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 and uh, film them and observe the reactions, and um, it, it, it's that was that was going on until supposedly it ended in 1963, where I think maybe. The people behind it moved on to some more um, greener pastures and some more, I guess, riper fruit that they could exploit. Um, But I mean, LSD, I mean, so you have in the Bay Area two pretty famous institutions or several famous institutions, but in in particular at Stanford, which was one of the most evil places in the United States (laughs) uh, and UC Berkeley, which is also very evil, but to a different extent. Um, and you know you had basically LSD like it's it's sort of penetration of the uh, counterculture really came up through the Bay Area, especially through sort of the scene surrounding Stanford. You know Ken Kesey, uh, what's that guy? Tim Leary, the Merry Pranksters, that guy from the Grateful Dead as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, Hunter. Uh, you had uh, you had Oswald or Owsley, exact excuse me, Stanley. Um, and, and, you know, you, you had all of this like sort of early LSD experimentation going on with the encouragement, let's say, of the federal government from behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, um, I, I've just put out, well, as we're recording this, I just put out today an episode about um, MKUltra and acid, well, really about acid as it was used during the MKUltra program. Yeah. And um, the the... There are two sort of competing theories, I guess. There's one that um, I cleave towards, which is the counterculture was coming. The CIA sort of anticipated it because of, you know, the way they were plugged into sociology departments and things like that all over the country. They knew that a leftist upswell uh, in political consciousness was not going to be good for business. So things like LSD, uh, as you encourage me to think of it, like think of it as like a technology and the Bay Area is like a lab for technologies mm-hmm. like this. Um, so I think that, yeah, they 
they seeded LSD into uh, the counterculture to, as yeah. a way to kind of manipulate it and capture it. But then you have the the wackier sort of more extreme version, which is the entire thing from top to bottom was engineered uh, at the direction of someone at Langley uh, for reasons unknown to discredit the left, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's sort of hard to kind of, I mean, I, I also sort of cleave towards the former, um, mm. but it also has elements of the latter in it, right? Like, I mean, yeah. what what we would have no, be no what we would know is the counterculture would be entirely different without the influence of a lot of these, uh, let's say, variables that were put in them by the CIA, and, and yeah, I'm including, you know, it, it, all the stuff that we're going to talk about here. But like, LSD is like impossible to separate from what was going on in the 1960s, especially in the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it is it is like an integral part of that. And you know, as I I, I don't know if you've have you ever taken LSD or acid? I've I've done everything except LSD. Uh, weirdly, we yeah, can't get I, it around here. It's really hard to get it where I live. Like things that people tell you are LSD, you know, you don't want interest in that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a speed. Uh, that's uh, yeah, it's. I mean, that I think is the case with a lot of like what's called LSD. And you know, I am not a fan of psychedelic drugs. Um, I have taken acid about five or six times um, to vary greatly varying degrees of quality um mm. uh, the only time i've taken it where i was like this is like good stuff i'm putting quotes around that was uh actually from a uh sort of relic uh 70s acid uh acid dealer guy who who anyways long story um <laughs> but uh but it, yeah it is it is I, I've known people who are really into psychedelics. I've known people who are really into acid. And, you know, as much as they proselytize it, I mean, I think it, it, it particularly politically speaking, it is not conducive to um, uh, any kind of what, what I would, uh, what I would say is like socialist kind of politics of, the, of, the, of even the type that were becoming popular in the sixties, which, which were not exactly always the, the most uh collective type socialist politics but uh yeah. you know for for all these communes and for all this togetherness i mean acid is a very individualistic thing i mean a lot of the, i think a lot of the greatest like sort of or like not the greatest excuse me like but the sort of common refrain you hear around it is like well it, it makes you realize everything's connected like okay it makes you sort of realize that but that information is essentially useless yeah. um you know, like uh, from a, from a like material point of view, because yeah, like everything's connected. It's all one big universe, but like it, it ends up, I mean, and, and we can see from history, it ends up with people becoming these very like um, individualistic and like, you know, it's, it's no surprise that a lot of the big yippies and like sixties countercultural people became, if not outright libertarians, something close to them. Um, yeah. That's, you know, that's something that we, um, we touched on in the weather underground episode. I uh, mean, um, Matt Chrisman. And I think a really good example, actually, of somebody who had their mind blown by acid and discovered the connectedness of everything is Sidney Gottlieb. You know, the. Um, yeah, yeah. He took acid 200 times. By the time he left the CIA, he'd become a kind of environmental campaigner and, yeah. you know, a yoga instructor, I think, as well. And yet at the same time, 
Um, I think I say in that episode, he possibly is one of the most prolific torturers of the 20th century. Yeah. So despite the, you know, like the uh, messianic qualities of like LSD or the uh, transcendent qualities, he still had no trouble separating his own inner journey from like what he was inflicting on the world. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think part of me too, like, I mean, this, every time I took acid, it was not, I never had any spectacular revelations or at least not I could remember the next day but yeah. um you know I, I i don't i think people uh, um, automatically assume it like sort of acts as this like cleansing to you that like it it, it, it like it expurgates or whatever i don't even know that's a word your sins mm. um but i mean it's as we can see from both people fighting in vietnam and people like yeah like gottlieb uh it 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 doesn't do that. Like you could, it's totally cap- People are totally capable of holding these two, um, you know, this like connectedness, this togetherness, this like opening these doors to reality. Uh, and also like, you know, shooting someone in the head. Like that's not, yeah. I mean, look, look at, look at Manson. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, I mean, that is, I assume most listeners of your show will, will be at least somewhat maybe familiar with, with, uh, you know, chaos and the, the, that, that book. And then, you know, beyond, even before that book came out, I mean, Lavenda wrote quite a lot about, um, you know, Manson and, uh, and, and experimentations done upon him uh, yeah. with, with LSD and then him himself using that as a technology of mind control. And the thing is like, you know, there's a reason like, you know, they experiment with rats. I mean, speaking of Jolly West, but they experiment with rats using, using cocaine, using LSD, using all these different drugs as like, okay, you can glean a lot of information about, of course, like, you know, the behavior of rats and the behavior of people who, you know, might also use those drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you can also view like this, the 60s and I mean, certainly, okay. So we, we know that the government uses drugs as a tool, uh, as a technology. I mean, also as a weapon. But, um, you know, there's, there's these very famous stories from the 60s about like, you know, like the bad acid at Woodstock or in, in San Francisco in particular, there was a big thing about how all the acid disappeared one day and then it was replaced by speed. Right. Yeah. And I, okay. I associate British people with speed because you guys like, um, <laughs> I don't know why. Shit. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know myself why that is. Um, I mean, it's just a thing. It's just yeah. when you're sort of of a certain age and in a certain place, everybody yeah. has speed. Tunnel. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think the amphetamine of the 60s was slightly different than maybe the methamphetamine of today. Um, mm. I did quite a lot of methamphetamine when I was younger, and uh, it is bad for you. It makes you a paranoiac. It makes you – I mean, if uh, I think meth is – by far the most evil drug that there is um and uh and it you know it's it's there's a there's a very definite point in the 60s i think it's in 68 or or maybe 69 when all of the sort of like stories you hear from the hate talk about how things turned dark because everybody started taking speed all the time and Boy, if you're going to give someone i mean there's a reason that they give soldiers speed besides just to keep them up i mean it makes you into it can make you into a monster. Yeah, um, vicious. Yeah, in a, in a way that I think acid even can't. Um, and so you know, it's 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 it's, and then of course the flooding of all of these areas with heroin afterwards. Um, what do you think? So th- so the, all the acid disappeared, and then speed starts to replace it. Do you think at that point that was something that was directed, or do you just think it was kind of a, a shift in taste and and the market, or or a bit of both? 
it, it's funny because I, I mean, I think people would have kept doing LSD to their heart's content. I mean, mm. it, most of the, I, it's hard to say, right? Because obviously we have no proof of this at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of go to two directions. Like, okay, yeah, it was either like some big bust happened. Um, although, I mean, there were pretty big busts during the 60s. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's it, you, there was also a lot of willing players to fill that niche in the market. Um, but it, it's hard to say actually what happened there. I mean, I would not be at all surprised if that that was um, nudged or, you know, directly, uh, you know, ordered by, by some government department. Um, but it also, of course, could be a, a change in, uh, in, I don't know, in, in taste or something like that. Uh, but I, I don't see that because meth is just such a, or excuse me, amphetamines are just such a like, I don't know. I, I think people could sort of see it tearing everybody apart, but it's also yeah. highly addictive and you can do it in a way that I think you can't do uh, LSD in. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's it's hard to say, but you know, it did get replaced by heroin. We do know that the heroin replacement, or at least the flooding of heroin, was was a direct result of the U.S. government's um, entry into the well, not entry as they've been in it for a long time, but uh, direct manipulations, let's say, of the global market for heroin. Yeah, um, I and mean, distribution networks. That that's something that like we do actually have Nixon admin staff openly saying that heroin was a very useful tool, you know, for uh, sort of discrediting the hippies and the black liberation movement, stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that I would say it's fairly well established now that, yeah, drugs played a a pretty important role uh, for the the US government there. Heroin, that is. And to me, it's like if my image of like the deranged hippie is like, okay, well, I think the the common image is like some guy who's whacked out of his mind on acid. But I think being whacked out of your mind on speed is actually closer to what people might think of as like the Manson affect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Acid is too, I don't know. It makes everything too far away where speed makes makes you sort of feel more, I think, godlike than acid does. Although, you know, maybe I didn't do the same kind of acid as these guys. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I mean, it, since you've mentioned uh, since you've mentioned Manson, um, I guess we could maybe talk about that as well, like the political cults that started to emerge at this point. Um, not necessarily just in San Francisco, but like up and down the West Coast. Yeah, mm-hmm. not just political, but also kind of pseudo religious, New Age sort of. Uh, collectives that start to appear um the sla i guess is like the most famous one symbionese liberation army yes um i had to practice uh, <laughs> i had to practice pronouncing that funnily enough paul avery actually wrote a book on them that my dad said the last time they ever hung out uh they spent the night doing railing cocaine in my dad's apartment <laughs> and uh and Paul Avery's book, I guess, on the SLA had just come out, or maybe it had come out previously or something. And uh, he wrote my dad this like dedication inside the the cover of it. My, I still actually, my dad has that book. I've, I've, that's how I found out who Paul Avery was in the first place. Um, but, uh, and that was, of course, they promised to be lifelong friends and then never saw each other again. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's such like 70s cocaine guy energy, yes. though, you know, like. Let's let's open a restaurant, man. A vegan restaurant. Yes. Yeah. No. No. Totally. He's like. He's like. Yeah. We made. We said we were going to do all this stuff together, and then just like never <laughs> did anything. So yeah. Beyond like the SLA, you also have 
the first emissaries from People's Temple start kind of mm-hmm. setting out stalls in San Francisco, kind of feeling out the vibe, seeing what they can establish there, yeah. which obviously is quite ominous because of, we know what comes next. Um, I'm ambivalent about the shit around people's temple well more specifically about Jonestown. i don't know that i buy much of the uh you know the mk ultra stuff about it um, yeah yeah but i think that sometimes it doesn't matter so much if there was like a concerted conspiracy because it is significant that they appeared here as they did at this time uh and yeah. in this kind of firmament even yeah, I mean, there was there was a like, there's a kind of couple things going on here. Like, you have like this sort of like radical politics stuff, which like the SLA. I mean, the, the stuff of the SLA too. I think there is a very convincing case to be made that SLA was a, a political creation um, and not necessarily by the people who started the SLA. And mm. they sort of came out of nowhere. Um, I mean, they obviously came out of somewhere, but they 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 didn't really necessarily emerge from any existing political currents. And you know, the connection between Donald DeFries and the uh, I think it was the Black Cultural Association uh, and the guy who ran that it was also, I believe, a UC Berkeley professor who had been a uh, let's say a CIA attaché in, mm-hmm. uh, in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and and just like the immense cultural impact that they had, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously, kidnapping Patty Hearst is a pretty big deal, but you know, as opposed to anybody, I mean, there was a, quite a lot of strange political stuff happening in in this time period, and that that gets worse through the seventies uh, yeah. when 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 a lot, a lot of those things start to sort of fall apart. But but SLA, I think, is really emblematic, and the the, the milieu that that comes out of uh, you know, the Church of Satan was founded here in sixty six. I. Personally, I, whenever people, whenever I read anything about talking about the Church of Satan as this like really big, bad, like actual Satanist conspiracy thing is I, I always sort of like, it, it, I mean, if you look into it even a little, it's just like, it's not, it's like bullshit. Like, it's I, like I'm going to hit you with another inappropriate um, internet comparison, anonymous, uh-huh. you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the anonymous of Satanism. It's like, you think it's this amazing network thing that you know if only you could discern the uh the contours of it you would uncover something huge but it's it's just a bunch of of levee is like levee is basically like a clout shark like he's yeah, just like yeah. just trying to hang out with sammy davis jr and like do cocaine i mean I've, I've asked my dad about them before and he's like i mean he never came into contact with them but he's like yeah i was just like everyone kind of just thought of them as like people who had group sex. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, like a, like, like a way to pick up, like it was like these kind of like creepy guys picking up girls. Yeah. Um, he, um, and, he played the devil in Rosemary's yeah, baby. I think, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, which actually that is, you know, considering he made that, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah that actually yeah, is, yeah. is more That's, convincing than uh, being a, <laughs> a creepy guy than, or a more little more than a creepy guy than, than just having the church of Satan, but you know, not, not a, a formidably like powerful force that was actually behind anything. And, you know, actually LaVey, uh, you know, after the, the hubbub of the sixties kind of dies down, strikes a pretty pathetic figure, uh, yeah. in the cultural consciousness. I mean, he kind of never regains his former glory and just becomes this sort of like, you know, countercultural figure shunted to the side and, you know, sort of slumping through life. Like so many of these fucking burnouts, um, you know, you had the process church moved to, uh, you know, obviously had, had, had members in the, uh, in, in San Francisco, although they go underground in 68. Um, 
The Process Church fascinates me just because of the incredibly fucking bizarre journey that that outfit has undergone over the last like 60 years or so. Yeah. Uh, they're now a pet rescue service. Um, yes. I understand. <laughs> and um, Yeah. Best Friends Animal Shelter. And this from publishing like special magazines called Death uh, yeah. in like the early 70s. That's incredible. Like, um, but yeah, I've been trying to get hold of some of their magazines, actually. Um, I found a couple on eBay, but I don't know how legit the asking price is because it seems quite They're cheap. They're expensive. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I haven't looked up in a long time, but when I looked it up, I, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of something else or it's like a collection, but like I feel like when I looked up Process Church magazines, they were like hundreds of dollars. That that feels right. Um, the price I'm seeing feels wrong. Uh, the death issue is one of them. And they they only want um, like 35 quid for it, which is it's nothing really. Um, $8,000 in American. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it is right then. Maybe it's legit and I should go for it. But you had, you had the Nation of Islam there as well. I mean, San Francisco, or excuse me, the Bay Area has always had sort of a lot of like uh, kind of breakaway black Muslim sex too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a uh, sort of spectacular, I think one murder and maybe another attempted murder connected to the Your Black Muslim Bakery, which was then it was called Your Black Muslim Bakery in, uh, in Oakland, which I've been to before uh, or went to when it was still extant. Um, they killed a journalist, I think, for reporting on some kind of like financial malfeasance that the, that was that the uh, company was undergoing um, in a pretty brazen like downtown hit maybe ten mm. years ago in Oakland. Um, I mean, you just had all of these like really intense, insane groups, and you also, of course, had like the Weather Underground, yeah, and uh, and a, a lot of a, a lot of the sort of more Violent sex, uh, I, I kind of popped up in the early seventies in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a series of like, I never know how to pronounce this, but intersinine, inter in, oh fuck, intersinine, when people like it's yeah, intersinine, you know, uh, communal warfare between a lot of and, and often pretty violent communal warfare between a lot of left wing political groups starting in the late sixties. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, I starting even with the Black Panthers. I think uh, one of their one of their main members was killed, and I think found dead in the or chopped up in like the Santa Cruz Hills. Yeah, there's um, there's a pretty uh, dark pass. Well, it's chaos, so they're all dark passages. But there's an especially dark passage in um, chaos where he's talking about how the FBI were kind of actively engineering uh, tit yeah. for tat hits between different splinter factions of the Black Panthers. Um, yeah. And I mean, we talked about this before, but obviously it's something that they weren't doing with like the weather underground, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, that, that there's a famous occurrence of that happened, I think in UCLA, uh, where US, yeah. which was like a Black Panther type group and the Black Panthers actually had a shootout uh, yeah. engineered, I believe by the FBI there. I'm yeah. not remembering all the details correctly. Funnily enough, a lot of people don't know this is actually the People's Temple and the Black Panthers had a shootout at one point in the Fillmore over control of who gets a seat on a community board. I have never heard this before. When yeah. did this happen? Uh, uh, in, later in the 70s. Um, Holy shit. But yeah, yeah, it was uh, in the Fillmore. Holy fuck. You know, like, there's a lot of strange connections. Well, obviously, there's a lot of strange connections with Jim Jones and, like, Patty Hearst as well. Like, he offered um, some of his uh, People's Temple... Yeah. followers as hostages or he he offered to negotiate with the SLA as well 
Um, yeah, I mean, stuff. Jones was so like it's it's been so downplayed now. I mean, for all the obvious reasons, but like you know, people don't think of Jones as like you know he was okay. Yeah, he was this figure in San Francisco politics, but he was a major figure in San Francisco he, politics. He established a genuine kind of parapolitical structure in that yeah. city, and it's it's interesting how it doesn't really get looked at as much as Jonestown because. For people like us, that should be something really interesting to kind of study and take apart and look at how he did it. Um, not because like <laughs> I want to do what he did, but just as a as a kind of a parapolitical organization, sort of developing and forming and attaching yeah. itself. Yeah, but like Harvey Milk, for instance, was like closely attached to Jim Jones. Mm. Um, it's 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 like, it, and that is obviously excised from all the the sort of histories of the time um but or at least you know shunted to to being a footnote but uh i mean he he ran one of like he, i mean he ran a tight fucking operation uh which i guess is good to do if you i mean if you have a cult you might as well run a good operation out of it it's harvey um, milk the guy who got assassinated by somebody that dan wyatt a cop right no oh, no right. not even fired a fellow city council or city supervisor oh right um, okay i've actually been in the uh yeah i've been in the office where that happened. Uh, it's uh, yeah, he did it at, uh, at, at city hall and then cops. This is the other thing we need to mention with the Zodiac stuff too, is that cops in San Francisco are like, let's just say the dominant cultural trends have not penetrated the police department and they had not during the 1960s and they had not during the 1970s and eighties and even today. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but you know, the cops in the 60s were not fans of the hippies. Uh, even in the 70s when, when Dan White, a former SFPD officer turned city supervisor, killed not only his coworker, a fellow city supervisor, but the mayor, there were cops, uh, cops walking around in free Dan White t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> my, my dad told me that at one point, because he kind of lived near the, the police station in, uh, in North Beach, at one point he was at a bar and he heard four cops talking about how they wish they could burn down every uh, gay bar in, in the city right after sort of the white night, which is when um, when a bunch of people sort of rioted at City Hall and burned cop cars uh, in protest over, uh, I believe, Dan White's acquittal because he did famously get acquitted uh, due to the Twinkie defense. Um, which he said <laughs> what, he had, what is the uh, the Twinkie defense? So the guy, Dan White, the killer in that case, he had, uh, he said he he ate too much sugar. And it like he like was unhealthy and uh, ate too many Twinkies, and then uh, that's why he uh, he, ki he, he killed two people, and he got off with that. Uh, I think he might have later got. I mean, he later killed himself, but I, I think he later might have gotten arrested or might have done. I think he might have had to be in jail for for some reason. Can't right. remember exactly the full details of that, but this was like the famously did get uh, did get acquitted of some of the charges. When you look at you know the careers and the life and times of people like Reeve Whitson, yeah, uh, possibly, possibly not CIA connected. Um, these guys were kind of 
given free reign to sort of establish themselves and sort of percolate through uh, the counterculture as it developed and um, kind of openly sort of subvert and and infiltrate a lot of these groups. Um, But what I guess we should probably start looking at in more detail is, bear with me a sec. So you have like a definite, disillusion starts to come over the place. Um, yes. You know, particularly as the 70s sort of dawn. Um, and it's it's quite sad, really, in some ways, because I am sympathetic, you know, to what people like the diggers, I mean, I'm not an anarchist, but I, I'm sort of sympathetic to what they were trying to do. But, yeah, it just seems like the, the game got too much for everybody and events yeah. sort of overtook people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, in in just very 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 broad strokes, uh, I think that the '60s were sort of seen as this time of hopeless ho- hopefulness and of like change, mm-hmm. and then the '70s is almost this like Thermidorian counter reaction. If not not like the '50s, like or the the imagined public public consciousness '50s, like regaining power, but this sort of like um, synthesis where things just got dirty and uh, and fucked up, and everyone was on drugs, but not yeah. the fun kinds, yeah. and like. Uh, you know, the crime exploded and everyone killed each other. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it, it, it led to basically to this like very dark decade. And then of course you had the eighties, which was like this sort of resurgence of individualness or individualism and like sixties or excuse me, as in cocaine in place of LSD as this sort of like um, self-actualizing yeah. substance. Although I guess I would say with the 80s, because the same thing happened over here, it was kind of a response to a decade of what was like imagined decay. Yeah, a decade of decay. And what we had was similar to Reagan, where it was like this sort of gross jingoism sort of pasted over this hyper-violent society and politics that we still had. We just did a better job of sort of, yeah, covering them up a little bit more. Yeah. but yeah, so the 70s is definitely a very dark turn. And I guess this is when we start getting serial killers uh, becoming a kind of cultural figure in America. Um, and it, it that kind of sort of, you know, the lone killer sort of stalking the, the highways at night and the yeah. dark city streets, it kind of, there's something about that that sort of reflects the sense of like atomization, I guess, that was going on in the culture at large. It's weird too because you know the zodiac sort of disappears in sixty nine, and it's like almost like he kind of dissipates into the larger society because yeah. this set of paranoia really. I mean, that is one thing that you can really glean from sixties uh, history is that this paranoia really sets in with everybody, and you're assaulted from all sides. If like a young person who's maybe in the counterculture is that you have not only all your friends now fucking shooting speed up for two weeks at a time, clawing their eyes out. But you have uh, you have COINTELPRO moving in on you. You have yeah. um, you know sort of all of these like you know great bright sixties organizations you know, dissolving. You have the cops coming down on you, and like also all of society hates you. Um, and of course, the Vietnam War ramping up before then it of course uh, you know slides down. Uh, and uh, it, it it's just yeah, it's just like. I don't know. I mean, you have this like explosion in serial killers uh, from the seventies until I think the, the the nineties or the early two thousands, and it's it's really sort of spectacular how many killers were operating. I mean, this is McGowan does a pretty good job with this talking about just like 
there were a lot of fucking killings going on in the Bay Area. And, you know, if we're including the Santa Cruz in the Bay Area, which we really should not. I mean, it's, I, I, I view that as not, I, I, I don't think anyone would view that as a Bay Area. It's nowhere near the Bay. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it, it, it is sort of within the same sort of broad area. Uh, and then you have, uh, once those murders died down, all these murders in Sacramento and even in San Francisco, you have the zebra murders of the early seventies. Um, talk to me about the zebra murders. Cause these are fucking insane. The zebra murders were, which is, it's sort of insane how these have been really forgotten. Mm-hmm. I think like totally, I think it, you know, anybody in the Bay area, not anybody, but most people would probably know about the Zodiac killings at least even if they didn't really like think about them ever, but the zebra murders have been totally like shunted aside. Uh, I, they were, I, I don't know how many people got shot, but I think it's almost close to 20 people shot by yeah. a group of former nation of Islam uh, members. I think about four of them. Um, it, it would go around uh, killing or wounding white people, including the future mayor of San Francisco, Art Agnos. Um, yeah. And, uh, it, it is just like, it, they were, it was, I think a six month period where they shot like 25 people, which is really an ins- yeah. insane amount Absolutely of people. Absolutely crazy. Um, and then the reaction to that, I guess as well, that you were, you were telling me about, um, before we, we started recording the way that the SFPD sort of reacted to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally different almost in the way that they reacted to the Zodiac. I mean, granted the Zodiac killed like one person in San Francisco, but yeah. And these people shot, you know, over two dozen, but it, it, it was, they basically like put the city under martial law, but only for black people mm-hmm. for like six months. I mean, it was, it was like a stop and search kind of thing that would make any New York mayor, in New York city blush. It was like, if you were black, like you were getting stopped multiple p- times a day, profiled, uh, and it, it was like it, it was like a, a state of siege for black people in San Francisco. Yeah. It eventually had to get overturned with like a series of pretty intense lawsuits. Um, the guys were eventually caught because one of their junkie friends turned them in, who actually might have been one of the murderers as well. Um, but, uh, one of the junkie friends turned them in and, and they all got arrested. And I guess that guy, uh, was put into witness protection because no one's heard from him since. Um, but it was just like a, an intense series of, I mean, imagine in any city right now, if, if there was a group of people like randomly shooting people of another race on the street. And this really, this really also brings to mind, I mean, the incitement of a race war stuff that is connected to the Manson case. Yeah. And I find the the fact that there were kind of two waves, you know, so you had the first in 73, mm-hmm. it's like a brief pause, and then they come back uh, in 74. It's not that long a pause, really, but um, a pause for recalibration almost, a, a pause to rethink the strategy, which puts me very much in mind of, um, dare I say, the Brabant killers. It's, it is definitely has that feeling of uh, there is there is a, a definite motive behind this. It might look random and chaotic, but there is definitely an intent here and a at least to them a, a logical outcome that they're seeking. At this time too, you also had, or around this time too, you also had Edmund Kemper, who is I think one of the more famous serial killers because he really hits all of the uh, all of the check marks for like what people think a serial killer is, which is yeah. A, strange physique wanting to either fuck or kill his mother and uh having a uh a necrophiliac as well 
Um, I mean, I know you. I I gather that you don't really watch TV all that much. Um, no. So there was a show on Netflix called uh, Mind Hunter, which was about the FBI's the early days of the FBI's forensic profiling department. I've heard of that. I've, I've I know that exists. I've never seen it. Yeah, and it's like every episode they the the characters interview a different serial killer you know um yeah and edmund kemper's in it and this is all by way of saying basically they release these sort of bonus clips on youtube you know to promote the show yeah and one of them is just the guy who plays edmund kemper eating an egg salad sandwich because by this point he kind of the character of edmund kemper he kind of become a bit of a, a fan favorite of the people who watch it yeah and there's something about that that just I mean, it's not the actor's fault, but it just disturbed me on so many levels. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing here, people? Um, well, serial killer fandom is 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 big. It is legit. a booming industry. Yeah. yeah, and I guess also just to so just to recap, as McGowan does in uh, in Program to Kill. Um, so there were no fewer than six serial killers or mass murderers: Charles Manson, Stanley Baker, Edmund Kemper, Herbert Mullen, John Lindley Frazier and the Zodiac, all spawned from the Santa Cruz slash San Francisco metropolitan area in a span of just over four years, at a time when serial killers were a rare enough phenomenon that they hadn't yet acquired a name. And another serial killer was said to be at work not far away during the same time frame. As Bundy chronicler Richard Larson recounts, the bodies of at least 14 young women were found uh, not going to give the description of how they were found, in Northern California between December 1969 and December 1973. Um, and there was a weird, you know, ritual aspect uh, to that. And then there's a mention to the the murder of Fred Bennett as well, uh, who was found mutilated. So, yeah, there's talk of fandom, like Ted Bundy especially has become sort of the, mm-hmm. uh, is it the er uh, Serial killer, I suppose. Yes. The, um, yeah, yeah. Fandom. Um, and it, it is remarkable that all these people did emerge, if not in the Bay Area specifically, then from the same general sort of geographic location at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, I, it, it's all of like our main serial killers. I feel like that we like the, 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 the hits that people talk about are all probably born also like in the immediate post-war generation, like yeah. in like 45, 46, 47. Yeah. Um, you know, there's that sort of like general profile, the serial killer. It's like, you know, a lot of them come from, you know, uh, the families with veterans as parents, which, you know, obviously a lot more common back then considering there was a draft and especially World War II, there was you know, a war. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, it is, it is like this just, I don't know. I do think slime that people come out of. Yeah. I I think there is something to be said for, even though there was a draft, the nature of wars then was so much more psychologically impactful for an American than, you know, something like uh, the drone wars that we have now where, you know, you push a button and it's someone 10 miles away who you will, you've never met, you never will meet them. And you don't even see what happens to them. All, you, all you've done is push a button. Whereas, yeah, uh, World War II, Korea, even Vietnam, yeah. you visceral. really, yeah, it's visceral. It's it's um, devastating in a way that your experience wouldn't be with the more technologically advanced wars of later years. So when you go home, you're bringing back a different set of experiences and a different type of trauma, I suppose. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and much more like high impact too. Like, yeah, you know, it's it's here. You know, it's it's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, you might not know anybody who ever actually. I mean, probably you know, chances are you know somebody who's been in in the army or something, but you probably don't know anybody who's like fired a rifle or anything like that or been I in was, a battle. Yeah, I was I was just about to say like I have known a fair few uh, Iraq squatties, squatties. Yeah, uh, fucking don't get me started. Um, but yeah, I've known I've known a fair few of them, and they always seem to have been at one step remove from the yeah. actual fighting. It's very rare I come across like someone who was in the army who was actually firing a gun and seeing someone in front of them die as a result yeah. of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, even just at the game, it's like in the nature of warfare. Even if you're not in the, you know. In, in most fighting that goes on now, the fact that weapon technology has advanced, even in its like most primitive level, um, to be more long range than it than it was at these times. I mean, Vietnam less so, but uh, you know, in, in World War II, generally battles were pretty close up. But it now, I mean, the average engagement distance, I think, for for modern armies fighting like Iraq and Afghanistan, is like six hundred meters or something. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah. very far. Then, unless you're seeing somebody through, you know, optics or something, you're probably not really going to see them much more than as a dot. Yeah, yeah, um, um, and I guess so. Like, you have this generation of um, serial killers and mass murderers and whatnot. So they're brought up in a that post-war environment that's kind of racked with society, uh, racked with violence. Mm -hmm. And, um, as you suggested, it's kind of the mind of a killer. Uh, it's this, a lot of them have a kind of severe mental illness that is basically indistinguishable from, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or even yeah. what we think of as people who survived MK ultra. So whether they were direct, uh, participants or not, the end result is effectively the same. They are in a dissociative state a lot of the time. Yeah, well, that's kind of how I, it's, it's weird because that's like, I mean, you can go, like we've talked about too, like you can go the full, like everything was created by the CIA directly, yeah. like 100%. Or you can see it like as, as the CIA was obviously heavily involved in the technology of a lot of these phenomenons. But like, this is also just the, the way that society alongside technology, which of course has its own so political implications is and 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 just the general like social makeup of society which also has its own political implications is progressing and it creates like the environment that these these kind of people come from yeah. whether they were like mk ultra experiments or not it's almost like you have to think of it as like there a lot of people at this point were basically indiscernible in, indiscernible from yeah. mk ultra experiments so whether they were directly i mean i do think it matters you know to find out whether they were directly experimented upon or not um at some point it almost becomes indistinguishable um, from, yeah. from the way people are. So it's like, you can think of like the sixties or a certain tenor of the sixties as, uh, as just like MK ultra, the society in that point. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I would also sort of say, um, just as a sort of addendum that a lot of this stuff can be read as a kind of return of imperial violence as well, not to get too sued yeah. about it, but people like William Mensa and then indirectly the people who were brought up in these military uh, families. Um, and they're kind of horribly fucking broken people basically. And yeah. they just turned loose in this world that everything is changing at the speed of light. And the, the victim pool is huge because of the amount of uh, upheaval that's going on. 
Yeah, I think ironically, like, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've read a few theories on why serial killer patterns changes and or change and why like they're more pr- like prominent in some decades. And then the decline has, uh, you know, fully reached us now. There's not a lot of serial killers active anymore. And, you know, there's obviously like people are like, well, it's forensics and blah, blah, blah. And like, that does make sense um, to a certain degree. Uh, but there's also, you know, and then the victim pool too. I mean, the, the hitchhiking being a much more common yeah. phenomena. And then when hitchhiking sort of gets this, uh, it's funny because I think a lot of people associate hitchhiking with getting killed as a hitchhiker now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and you know, and you know, so you see serial killers sort of change their targets to being home invasions and then sex workers, which obviously those two things have, uh, phenomenons have also been, you know, uh, present during all of sort of serial killings, golden age, golden age, but have all but disappeared now. I mean, people still mm. kill prostitutes. Um, don't get me yeah, wrong. People yeah. still, you know, break in your house and kill you, but uh, certainly less common than it used to be. Well, that seems to have form. been, um, yeah, that, that seems to have been another shift that happened where a lot of killers seem to shift to uh, home invasion type deals. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy now, but he would Richard break Ramirez. into a house. He would, is he the guy who would break in days before and hide tight, uh, tie tags and stuff around the house and then he would break in when the family was there and he would tie them up with the stuff that he'd hidden in the house you know like days before uh i'm not um, certain on that one but that um, i mean there's there's two big ones the golden state killer and uh richard ramirez the night stalker yeah and the golden state killer was a cop wasn't he? yeah he uh, was if i'm not mistaken which is um, also something you can think of with the zodiac too like that's always i assume like it could be somebody cop or cop adjacent that is a hundred percent. I th- did. We already mention uh, Toshi sending his own uh, letters and we did his not know. But one of the uh, one of the main cops who was who was uh, investigating the Zodiac case was a, uh, I believe, the inspiration for Dirty Harry. He was, yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, but a <laughs> very colorful character who uh, who got caught sending in fan letters to himself and to, to Paul Avery, in fact, at the, at the SF Chronicle, I believe, uh, and, uh, extolling his police work. And, uh, and they also think he might've sent some of the Zodiac letters, but no one's totally sure on that. Jesus. Maybe he did it. (laughs) I was just thinking that, like, what the fuck? What if he was actually the Zodiac? Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, it would make sense. I mean, he fits the profile of, I mean, if you're fucking, if you're, if you're the fucking inspiration for dirty Harry, you're a bad guy. (laughs) So, um, I mean, what do you, I just, I'm just curious in general about this actually, uh, cause I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, so you've read, I take it you've read Chaos then? Like yeah, cover, cover. I read when it came out, so it's been a little while. Yeah. Um, what do you make of um, the the kind of, what's alluded to in like the second half of the book that like Manson was some kind of MK Ultra um, product, I suppose? So I, I'm willing to believe it. For mm. sure, like I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely entire. I think the dude does lay out a pretty convincing. I mean, I, I can't remember all the points he makes in the book because, again, it's been a little while, and I've unfortunately had to read quite a lot of books since then. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'm mixing this up, but then I've also read. Uh, there is a uh, 
a series of Peter Lavenda books called, I think, American Grimoire. Uh, but the third one is called The Manson Secret that actually covers a lot of the same territory, although in less detail. Um, yeah. But uh, it's a it's a it's also a pretty entertaining book to read. Um, it, I I I I think it's entirely within the realm of possibility for sure. I have talked to some people yeah. I know who know a lot more about drugs than me who say it is maybe not as possible as people think. Um, Mm. and certainly harder than people, people might make it seem. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things like nine 11 where if like the CIA had planned it, then that's how they would do it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly convinced that he was some kind of a, like a protected informant. Um, well that, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. He establishes that really solidly. Um, you know, the, the raid on Span Ranch a couple of weeks before the murders where they found all these yeah. guns and weapons. That should have violated his parole and he got off anyway. Um, and there's other stuff as well beyond that. But yeah, um, I'm still kind of, I believe it's entirely possible that he was like some kind of uh, ultra project, but um, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know for sure, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing with a lot of MK Ultra stuff is like, I mean, definitionally, not definitionally, but like, you know, almost all of those documents were burned, you know, it's, it's, it's literally impossible to find out for sure with a lot of this stuff, because there can't be any corroborating evidence that we know about that exists right now. That's like smoking gun stuff, because that was very deliberately burned by the people who conducted these experiments. And so, and then I guess like the subsequent investigations like the commissions and stuff yeah that was largely an exercise in just burying it burying the ashes exactly even. yeah um, yeah <laughs> there's so much more i want to talk about but jesus we've been going for hours at this point um i don't know what do you, how do you how do you want to sort of enter the end end run sort of thing i think we can talk about how like like i was saying before like the zodiac sort of like dissipated uh into into the 70s but then the 70s dissipated into the 80s, into the 90s, into the 2000s. And, you know, we sort of have the decline of serial killers and the massive, I'm sure very humorously to you uh, foreigners, upsurge in mass shootings. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I try to think about the connections between the two, right? Like, because we have seen like a precipitous decline in serial killers and a huge upswing, obviously, in mass shooters. I mean, there were mass shooters before the, sort of the modern era, specifically thinking about the the Bell Tower shooter at uh, Texas A&M. But I can't think of any other real famous ones besides that, although they did exist. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me that they come from two different impulses, but they obviously serve, I think, the same, um, I don't know, purpose for a lot of these people uh or at least yeah. a similar one although there's a certain like sort of sexuality that i think is 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 present in serial killers whether they actually have sex with people or not or rape people or whatever or not uh that is that is missing in mass shooters um it, i don't know it, it it seems to me that both are like really i know this is such a fucking banal point to make but like really indicative of their time um yeah yeah um, I mean, I don't even know if this is a banal point at this point, cause I've been sort of toying with it for the last week. <laughs> so I don't know anymore if it's actually meaningful, but, um, the thing I've been talking about, about how serial killers and the media coverage that surrounds them, uh, they, they make for very good kind of narrative structures, yeah. you know, the stories of them. 
Whereas mass shootings are kind of instantaneous and over. And the only residual coverage people have then is to kind of count the bodies and go through the, you know, the same cycle of trying to figure out what made this person snap. Yes. Um, and they don't yet have a way to extend that as a narrative uh, in mass media. So I think that explains why serial killers still dominate, you know, like uh, true crime formats yeah. and things like that. Whereas mass shooting is it's much more terrifying and unsettling in a way because it doesn't make any narrative sense to um, – to most people, you know, no, um, no, and and it's it's funny. I think I think serial killing, or excuse me, I think um, even more than than serial killers, I think mass shooters is much more mimetic and like people, like I think that the sort of like copycat uh, idea about serial killers is much more present yeah. in mass shooters. Like it, it's it's yeah. My friend sent me this study about how many other mass shooters are like reference the Columbine shooters in either they're like lead up to doing it or their explanation or anything like that. And it's like the majority of like the most prominent mass shootings uh, in this, in the study that they showed me uh, actually do reference Columbine as like the, as, as, as part of their, uh, I don't know, I guess not motive, but like inspiration for doing it. Um, it yeah. And just like self justification really, isn't it? Like, um, yeah, and I, I think it's it's similar too that like it, I think you have the same factors of this happening organically, and I, don't, I mean I mean that in a very loose sense. But you also I think have some of this probably encouraged by the government, um, if not uh, you know yeah, yeah. outright sometimes yeah, taken uh, in the government's own uh, own hands. But uh, and it, but also like as a, as a general sort of symptom of the way that society is structured too. Yeah. Yeah. I had that uh, thought actually that um, just with the way that kind of working patterns and stuff have changed nowadays as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that plays a role. People are working a lot longer, you know, people are working a lot longer and also more safety conscious as a result, you know, when they finish a late shift or something. Um, so they're not, you know, they're not as likely to kind of be like caught out by somebody who's on the prowl for a victim. Whereas mass shooting, you can do that anytime, anywhere, as long as you've got a spare hour. Yeah. And, and a it, place where know. people are gathered. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's, it's a, it's, it's just a, it's like a much more sudden release of violence rather than like, you know, a serial killing generally, although not in every instance, but generally, um, you know, they take place a, a series of weeks or months or sometimes years, whereas mass shootings almost, exclusively happen in one burst yeah yeah it, it kind of matches the the world we're living in now where everything is like instantaneous yeah um yeah but just like you have like serial killer fans you also have really young mass shooter fans too i mean there's uh, there's there's a lot of i'm not going to say like a huge amount but like there's definitely a lot of young people. My friend wrote a sort of like like a small novel that they wrote like uh that was about uh, Columbine, not in like a, a an admir admiring type of way, and then they got mm -hmm. a lot of hate mail from people who genuinely did admire Columbine shooters. <sighs> um, and like it, you know, it's a it's a big thing I think among like sort of like TikTok young people, which is don't even get me started on that. I think as long as something can be mediated, it's going to find some fans yeah. somewhere, you know? Um, I mean, when I first sort of got interested in all of this stuff, like as a teenager, it was through like reading about the mafia, but yeah. there was, there was a deeper story there that you could never really get in like, you know, the schlockier accounts. 
because people have like their favorite gangsters and their favorite mob families and yeah. their favorite wars and stuff. And it's like, I, I just want to read about like the, the economics of it, you know, yeah. and, uh, how this thing works at a mechanical level. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting actually. Like I bet it holds true for, I bet it holds true for even stuff like, um, terrorist attacks and stuff oh, yeah. on some level <laughs> people will have their favorite terrorist attacks with i guess 9-11 would be the big one yeah yeah it's a bit yeah, it's, <laughs> that's the biggie um it, you know it's 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 i think too with the zodiac is that the enduring mystery of it too and the fact that there's a yeah. fucking literal puzzle for people to figure out yeah it because it's a self-reproducing cottage industry at this point yeah the zodiac um i think the film did a lot to kind of Re- restart the the interest in him that's what it seems like i think that i mean it's no it's no sort of surprise i think that like the majority of serial killers just that are known about globally come from the u.s i think that's for a variety of reasons one of which is i think the united states obsession with serial killers whereas they might not be yeah. tracked as closely in basically anywhere else in the world maybe the uk we yeah we kind of we don't get many of them so when we do it's a really big sort of treat for the the journal, the news, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we get to cover this, but they get solved so quickly now that I think a lot of journalists are secretly disappointed when it happens because oh, they know they're absolutely. only, <laughs> only going to be on this story for like a week tops and then the news cycle is going to turn again. And then you have, well, of course, you guys have the famous Jack the Ripper, but. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the foundation, I suppose, of like the fascination with these guys is Jack the Ripper. Um, but I, I think, you know, there, there's sort of no surprise that they started occurring when they did, um, mm-hmm. and, or at least started really ramping up when they did, because they started occurring before that, obviously. Um, yeah. but, uh, but it is, I think you kind of hit the, hit the nail on the head earlier with like this sort of like return of violence from abroad. Like it was in the bloodstream at that point of Americans and, uh, mm-hmm. and it, 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 really like continued and continued and continued and continued. And now I think with just the way that the nature of war has changed too, you can almost see like smash shootings as a reflection back on the nature of that violence too. This sort of like faceless random violence, you know, like uh, that almost mirrors in the way, like a drone coming out of the sky and blowing up your car, you know, some fucking freak coming into the, to the school and just like shooting everybody or, you know, coming into a mall and just like blasting you, which is like random violence. That is totally like almost would seem to you like an act from God or whatever. Um, yeah. Coming out of the sky and just annihilating everything around you and, and you yourself. Yeah. That's, that is a very interesting point. Actually, I would, I would go along with that. Yeah. Um, and that's the the other thing as well, not to sound too glib about this or anything, but, you know, whether kind of CIA special projects or not, just because of the, the cultural firmament that, you know, the Kempers and the Bundys mm-hmm. came up in, and now, you know, the uh, Dylan Roofs and whatnot come up in now, even, even if they're not, you know, nudged by the government, yeah. in a sense, they are still programmed to kill yeah. just from the environment that they're in. Absolutely. Which, which, I mean, also leads you to wondering how much of that is programmed by the government, how much of that is on purpose, or, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to say for certain, but I mean, it is, it is obviously happening. And so it is worth examining the reasons why. One other thing too about Kemper, uh, mm-hmm. which I found sort of fascinating was that he is, I mean, if you watch an actual interview with him, he's incredibly well-spoken, has a pretty distinct voice, yeah. which is, I think why he's like many people's sort of favorite. But uh, yeah. he records audiobooks 
like Holy children's shit. audiobooks, which is I, funny. I don't think for Audible, but you know, for other companies. I think just out of like morbid curiosity, I have to listen to one of these. Uh, I'll give it a good ten minutes at least. He did the novelization, I think, of Star Wars. That was one of the one meant once mentioned. <laughs> I want him to do the Hunger Games. Yeah, that'd be, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That seems like a natural fit. <laughs> um, oh, but actually, uh, since we're on about funny things, we heard. Oh yeah, so yeah, that's what I found um, that made me raise an eyebrow is. Um, Rodney Alcala, who was the dating game killer, because mm-hmm. uh, because he appeared on the dating game um, while he was in the middle of his <laughs> serial spree, um, he was a clerk at Fort Bragg, uh, which is where they they do they did do some MK Ultra and ESP research there. Um, you know the remote viewing stuff. Yeah, uh, he suffered a an unexplained nervous breakdown where he developed post-traumatic stress syndrome, bipolar disorder, and multiple personality disorder. And then he studied film at UCLA under Roman Polanski. Classic. That would be, uh, I think, what you might call, at the very least, a synchronicity. (laughs) I just do not know what to do with that information. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about it all day, though. Yeah, yeah, I know know (laughs) what you mean. Uh, right, dude, I'll let you go anyway. Cause, uh, I don't, yeah, I've, I've impressed upon your time enough. Here, That's so. all right. Thank you for, thank you for having me on my, my landlord. She's about to come over in 10 minutes and I want to hear, have him hear me talking about this. <laughs> we timed it just right then. Cool. All right, brother. Well, thank you. All right, dude. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on, man. And as it was, so it goes. Uh, thanks again to Brace for making time for this trip into a very dark corner of the American experiment, to be fair. And thanks as ever to you fine people for listening and for eating of this tasty deep state sponge cake that we baked. Um, next week, we're back to a solo outing uh, as we, we log part two of Acid Spooks, where we'll be looking at the life and times of none other than Ronald Stark, uh, international man of mystery. So yeah, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already. Urge on friends and loved ones, mark the exits, and don't get captured.